All right. Well, I want to start with uh, a question, and it's a question I want you to think about for a moment as I sort of introduce our time with reading from an article. And after I read some excerpts from this article, I'll ask you to kind of provide your own commentary, your own feedback, uh, maybe some of your own thoughts in response to this question. And the question is simply this, and I, I, I know it's a very simplistic way to ask a question, um, but that's intentional. I want it to be very broad-based um, in the way it's being put forward. But here's the question. Is the world getting better or worse? That's it. That's the end of the question. Is the world getting better or worse? Now, let me read a, little, a few excerpts uh, from an article that was written in The Guardian, a British newspaper. And the title of the article is, Is the World Really Better Than Ever? So let me just read a few excerpts. By the end of last year, this is uh, published, by the way, in July of 2017, so it's pretty current. By the end of last year, anyone who had been paying even passing attention to the news headlines was highly likely to conclude that everything was terrible and that the only attitude that made sense was one of profound pessimism, tempered perhaps by cynical humor, on the principle that if the world is going to hell in a handbasket, one may as well try to enjoy the ride. Naturally, Brexit and the election of Donald Trump loomed largest for many. But you didn't need to be a Remainer or a critic of Trump's to feel depressed by the carnage in Syria, by the deaths of thousands of migrants in the Mediterranean, by North Korean missile tests, the spread of the Zika virus, or terror attacks in Nice, Belgium, Florida, Pakistan, and elsewhere, nor by the specter of catastrophic climate change lurking behind everything else. And all that's before even considering the string of deaths of beloved celebrities, this is great, that seemed like a calculated attempt on 2016's part to rub salt in the wound. In the spaces of, of a few months, David Bowie, Leonard Cohen, Prince, Muhammad Ali, Carrie Fisher, and George Michael, to name only a handful, were all gone. And few of the headlines so far in 2017, Greenfell Tower, the Manchester and London attacks, Brexit chaos, and 24-7 Trump, provide any reason to take a sunnier view. Yet, one group of increasingly prominent commentators has seemed uniquely immune to the gloom. In December, in an article headlined, quote, never forget that we live in the best of times, end quote, the Times columnist Philip Collins provided an end-of-year summary of reasons to be cheerful. During 2016, he noted, the proportion of the world's population living in extreme poverty had fallen below 10% for the first time. Global carbon emissions from fossil fuels had failed to rise for the third year running. The death penalty had been ruled illegal in more than half of all the countries, and giant pandas had been removed from the endangered species list. In the New York Times, Nicholas Kristof declared that by many measures, 2016 was the best year in the history of humanity. With falling global inequality, child mortality roughly half what it had been as recently as 1990, and 300,000 more people gaining access to electricity each day. Throughout 2016 and into 2017, alongside Collins at the Times, the author and former Northern Rock chairman Matt Ridley, the title of whose book, The Rational Optimist, makes his inclinations plain, kept, us, kept up his weekly output of ebullient columns celebrating the promise of artificial intelligence, free trade, and fracking. The loose but growing collection of pundits, academics, and think tank operatives who endorse this stubbornly cheerful handbasket-free account of our situation 
have occasionally been labeled the new optimists, a label intended to evoke the rebellious skepticism of the new atheists led by Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, and Sam Harris. And from their perspective, our prevailing mood of despair is irrational and frankly a bit self-indulgent. They argue that it says more about us than it does about how things really are, illustrating a certain tendency toward collective self-flagellation and an unwillingness to believe in the power of human ingenuity. And that it, best, it is best explained as the result of various psychological biases that served a purpose on the prehistoric savanna, but now in a media-saturated era, era constantly mislead us. Once upon a time, it was a, a great survival value to be worried about everything that could go wrong, says John Norberg, a Swedish historian and self-declared new optimist whose book Progress, Ten Reasons to Look Forward to the Future, was published just before Trump won the presidency last year. This is what makes bad news especially compelling. In our evolutionary past, it was a very good thing that your attention could be easily seized by negative information since it might well indicate an imminent risk to your own survival. The cave dweller, who always assumed there was a lion behind the next rock, would usually be wrong, but he'd be much more likely to survive and reproduce than the one who always assumed the opposite. But that was all before newspapers, television, and the internet. In these hyper-connected times, our addiction to bad news just leads us to vacuum up depressing or enraging stories from across the globe, whether they threaten us or not, and therefore to conclude that things are much worse than they are. Again, I'm skipping down some. I used to be a pessimist myself, says Norberg, an urbane 43-year-old raised in Stockholm who is now a fellow at the Libertarian Cato Institute in Washington, D.C. I used to long for the good old days, but then I started reading history and asking myself, well, where would I have been in those good old days? In my ancestors' northern Sweden. I, would probably, I probably wouldn't have been anywhere. Life expectancy was too short. They mixed tree bark in the bread to make it last longer. In his book, Norberg canters through 10 of the most important basic indicators of human flourishing. Food, sanitation, life expectancy, poverty, violence, the state of the environment, literacy, freedom, equality, and the conditions of childhood. And he takes special pleasure in squelching the fantasies of anyone inclined to wish they had been born a couple of centuries back. It wasn't so long ago, he observes, that dogs gnawed at the abandoned corpses of plagued victims in the streets of European cities. That's an encouraging thought. Sorry to have to to say that. As recently as 1882, only 2% of homes in New York had running water. In 1900, worldwide life expectancy was a paltry 31, thanks both to early adult death and rampant child mortality. Today, by contrast, it's 71, and those extra decades involve far less suffering, too. If it takes you 20 minutes to read this chapter, Norberg writes... Almost another 2,000 people will have risen out of extreme poverty, currently defined as living on less than $1.90 per day. These barrages of upbeat statistics seem intended to have the effect of demolishing the usual intractable political disagreements about the state of the planet. The new optimists invite us to forget our partisan biases and tribal loyalties, to dispense with our cherished theories about what is wrong with the world and what should be done about it, and breathe. Instead, the refreshing air of objective fact. The data doesn't lie, just look at the numbers. It's a lot longer article I could go on, but from this particular article's vantage point, if the, is the world better or worse, is it getting better or worse, really depends upon perspective. It depends on how you look at it. And I think we would all agree that in some ways that's true, right? But what do you think? 
How would you respond to that question, is the world getting better or worse? I think it's how you define it, but the chapel, our headmaster at chapel recently at our school did a teaching on uh, out of Micah, the be humble, um, Verse in my yeah. Walk yeah. So he was teaching that verse and he gave an example of someone who was very successful in their job, CEO of corporation, da, 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 all this kind of stuff versus, you know, another person who was just lived a more humble life but loved the Lord and served the Lord and, you know, he was comparing and contrasting success. You know, I asked the students who was more successful and it kind of came down to, well, how do you define success? Okay. And... I think it's kind of how do you define better? Is, okay. it, is it just longevity, longevity of life or what happens in that lifetime? Okay. Anyone else have any supporting or different thoughts? Yes. Well, Matthew 24 would seem to indicate that everything is going to get a lot worse. And uh, just the whole chapter, but particularly it says there will be great tribulation such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, it never will be. If those days have not been cut short, no human being would Okay. A little bit of different perspective there. Okay. What else? What do you think about that question? Is the world getting better or worse? Yeah. It depends on where your hope lies. Uh, if your hope is in protecting the environment or political means or whatever else other than Christ and uh, his righteousness, uh, you're in trouble. Okay. Okay. Why? Historically, things seem to get worse, seem to get better, but the human heart doesn't change, and what you see abused in one age doesn't get abused in the next age, but a different thing gets abused, and so, you know, you have less poverty, but you have more sins related to indulgence because you have greater wealth, and so I think it's just ebb and flow within a range that's not that big. Okay, so do we need to like line each other up and have a little bit of a fight here? How are we going to settle all this? We got some different perspectives. Anyone else have a yes? I think if I'm able to get up each morning and say, "Thank you, Lord Jesus. This is a great day. Keep my mind and my heart clean. Help me to witness to somebody today. It's a great day, and it's a day at a time." Okay, how about that perspective? Yeah. Yeah. God is determined to build his church. And I think where there's persecution, the church grows. Yeah. That's our hope that you want suffering is read by the guy and said you haven't really enjoyed the fellowship that you can have with the Lord unless you've had prison time. Yeah. Now I'm really going to have to line you guys up for a fight. I mean, this, is just, this just got super personal here. But no, I, I think that this is really helpful to kind, of, to kind of hear this because it really does depend upon what your vantage point is, how you're looking at it, what data points you're drawing from. I mean, I read this article, and at some point I'm like, well, yeah, that's true. So if that's, if that's my priority, or if, the, if that's how I define human flourishing, for example, that's one of the things that they pointed to. They have these different data points, these statistical data points that, that they say really encapsulate in, in the most comprehensive and 
in really tangible ways how you would want to measure human flourishing. And it was really, you'll notice it was tied a lot to um, things like um, sufficient food, um, sanitary conditions, living conditions, um, but other things as well, um, how, how children were faring in their particular environs and so forth. But of course, you could look at it from a purely sort of moral perspective, and we often do this. Is it not true? And I think Dalaba kind of was referencing this point. But it's, it's easy for us to view life from our narrow span of, of experience. We often, I think, do this even in, our, in the context of our study of Scripture, where we tend to look at American culture or American society in our current day and time, especially if we're looking at it from a purely sort of moral standard, moralistic kind of perspective, and we're like, think, you know, things have never been worse. However, in the context of, for example, the New Testament and the writings of Paul, there was some pretty bad stuff that was going on in, in common society that... <coughs> would really sort of diminish some of the things that we are so offended by in our culture. So there is a relativity to this, a relativity of perspective in all this. And I think, and I, and I, I love the point of just saying, you know, if I wake up in the morning and I have the perspective of God's goodness and grace and I have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, it's a great day. I mean, there's that perspective too. I think all this draws us, I think, effectively back to... Um, what I'd like for us to just do today as a, a little bit of a, a, a different approach to our study, but, but hopefully a, a fruitful one. I want us to look in just really broad survey kind of strokes. In, in the past, I want to kind of just walk through Proverbs in very summary fashion, um, just chronologically uh, by virtue of uh, chapter and verse, um, pulling out sample verses that really deal with I guess how I, what I would characterize as general well-being, and in particular as it relates to the effects of our experience of life, what we do in this life that either promotes general well-being, and what I mean by that is physical well-being and soul well-being. And if you think about this in the context of the effects the physiological effects of the state of our soul or our mind, it, it, it's that kind of connection that you see oftentimes reflected in Proverbs. And so when I just think about this, I just think about well-being. I mean, if you think about how um, being physically ill can sort of diminish your, your enthusiasm for life in that moment, right? Or if you have a particularly chronic pain, but you're having to kind of you know, persevere through it because of the demands of, of the day, you could be a little more irritable with people, right? You could be more sharp in your speech or whatever. So there's, there's that, that immediate connection of our physical experience on sometimes our attitude or our approach to our life in any given moment. And then there's the more sort of uh, steady state um, and, and, and persistent state of our soul or our mind or our thinking that can have chronic effects on our well-being. For example, you just think about if you, if you um, are suffering from chronic stress and you're not dealing with it effectively, that can have physiological effects on you, right? I mean, you can start to have physiological symptoms associated with 
a, a mental state that's persistent that is having adverse effects on your, your physical body. So just the idea of general well-being, and when you put it into the context of this question, is the world getting better or worse, you could say yes or no or both. Because, and all of that would be, in some ways, or from some vantage point, true. And I think it begs the question for us as believers, as Christians, and as those who trust in the authority of God's Word, well, what do we do about all that? How do we live our lives in the midst of, of, at times, I may look around and feel like the world's getting worse, and at times I might, might be very optimistic about the things in my immediate life, and at times I may be, you know, succumbing to the influence of, for example, social media. I loved using the example of that perfect photo of pancakes with syrup dripping off of it as though that's what this person has for breakfast every single morning when you know it's not true. It was like a snapshot they took. They could have even copied and pasted that picture from the Internet and not even been their own meal. Um, but, you know, you look at that and you're like, man, they're so lucky they get to eat the best breakfasts. You know, and you have that sort of that tinge of like, I don't know why everything comes back to food for me, but... <laughs> But anyway, um, but, but we, we, can, we, we can be influenced by all the various forms of media and, and social interaction and digital social interaction and all that, and, and our, our countenance can fall. Uh, we can begin to view our lives in comparison to some version of someone else's life, and we can literally be discouraged, and if that persists, then we can start to actually feel under the weather and... So I just think about this whole idea that Proverbs puts forward, and it's really just this, this picture of the, the effects of different things in our lives, different ways of thinking, different behaviors, different, different priorities, different perspectives on our general well-being. And I would argue that if you look at the totality of Scripture and you think about what we're called to as believers, we of all people should be characterized as those who have a tremendous level of stable general well-being and perspective on life. In fact, that should be one of the hallmarks of those of us who are in Christ and seeking to grow and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Um, I even think of what Peter said about be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. So the implication there is that people will notice your hope and ask you about it and call upon you to give an answer for it. I mean, that's pretty staggering. And think about the context of what Peter was writing into. But Nero's persecution of Christians, because he also said, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that you're undergoing right now. So he wasn't writing to people who were living in a day and time where everything was rosy for them. It's quite the contrary. And yet, he was telling them, be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you. And so I love just kind of looking, I just kind of went through these different verses in Proverbs and, there's, and again, this is just, part of it is warning and cautionary, part of it is just, just descriptive, but it really just speaks to this whole idea or this whole concept of, of general well-being that flows out of a life of wisdom, a life lived before the face of God and the wisdom that He can provide, if you want to kind of think of it that way, especially from the context of Proverbs. So, we're going to start in Proverbs chapter 3. And hopefully this will be fairly easy. I know that in past times when we've done these, uh, as we've been doing these uh, subject studies, it's been maybe difficult to keep up with the actual text because I'm bouncing around quite a bit. But this time I'm going to start in chapter 3, and every, every next verse that I, I read from will be either in that chapter or a, a future chapter. So we'll just kind of be able to turn chronologically 
as we go. So let's start in uh, Proverbs chapter 3, and uh, we'll look at first the verses 1 and 2. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments for length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Now here you have this reference to a father calling to his son to heed my counsel, listen to my teaching, and recognize that these commandments that I'm calling on you to keep, they're not just so that you'll have material success in life, but they're really oriented toward the essence of thriving life itself. Years of life and peace, they will add to you. This has to do with not just, not just uh, being, being honored for being right or righteous, but it has to do with a qualitative um, disposition of life. And so when we think about the importance of, of listening to wise counsel, of being open to wise counsel, and if we're, going to, if we're going to sort of extrapolate a broader application beyond just a parent's instruction and teaching to a child, and we just think about the importance of us being open and ready and, and willing to listen to and receive and act upon wise counsel with the recognition that there is, there is, it's not just to solve an immediate problem, but that disposition of life and heart and mind has a life-producing impact for us. And, it's, and, it, and it also includes peace. Uh, let's drop down to verses 7 to 8 of chapter 3. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Yes? Uh, just a quick comment about uh, what you have read previously in verse 2. Uh, the word peace, we all uh, have heard, shalom. Um, and that's not just an absence of warfare or conflict. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's important, and it's comprehensive in nature, and that's a good a good nuance to to highlight there. This next these next few verses, though, about not being wise in your own eyes and fearing the Lord, and then it gives us this this response, this disposition of life, uh, res- a response healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. Again, speaking of the priority of humility. Again, it's it's a it's in this context of chapter three of listening to, being open to counsel, but really it's a, it's a caution about, about not being prideful um, in, in your response to counsel and thinking, I, I've got this, I've got this figured out. And when you bring this to our context of life in the body of Christ, I mean, it, it's, it, it really, I'm going to make a pretty, a pretty sweeping statement here. Um, understanding that that there is no perfect church and that, it's, that this church in particular is filled with all of us who are struggling with our own areas of sin and weakness, and so we're, we're all frail. But um, I think that, that when I think about this congregation, this body of believers, and really more specifically the commitment of, of most people that gather here week in and week out and fellowship in different venues and are involved in different ministries, there's a general collective priority and emphasis on the power and authority of God's Word and on the importance of a life lived according to the truth and the power of God and the power of His Spirit and a, and a priority of, of working out our salvation with fear and trembling, of, of pursuing sanctification. 
And so, and, and this, the emphasis that we have on biblical counseling here, that's just a, it's a stated priority of ministry here, and training all of us to be effective in counsel, we should, as part of this body, should never for any length of time find ourselves struggling alone. Nor should we find ourselves wondering where we can get counsel, right? And I would say that, that oftentimes what is our habit and, what, and what, what the subtle temptation here, especially when it comes to this issue of, of humility, is that we rule out the value of someone else's counsel before we even hear it. We, we, and oftentimes the way that this happens when we're struggling in a particular area is we convince ourselves that no one will really understand. No one will really understand what I'm going through. And no one will really understand the depth and nature of my struggle. And so, why bother? You know, why ask for help? Why seek counsel? That is being wise in your own eyes. That's being prideful. So this, this would caution us. And what is the net result of that? If you and I find ourselves at some point of, of struggle, of challenge, where we've got, we're dealing with a sense of despair or hopelessness or we're really struggling with some particular relationship issue and it's really weighing on us heavily, if we persist in being wise in our own eyes, if we continue to avoid or refuse wise counsel, will that particular disposition result in healing to our flesh and refreshment to our bones? Probably not. Probably not. So again, this powerful statement about Wisdom and about being open to wisdom, about being humble in the face of counsel, uh, and really that leading to us knowing how to turn away from evil and walk in righteousness, it has this well-being effect. Chapter four. You can turn to chapter four now, verse twenty. 20 excuse me, twenty to twenty-two. And again, I did this in chronological versus subject matter order, so we might hit some repeated ideas here as we go, but. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 20 to 22. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Again, similar idea there. Repeated refrain. Turn to uh, chapter 11 now. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. Chapter 11, verse 17. A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. Now this is the ESV. I like the ESV, and it's a great translation, but actually the King James Version, I think, provides a better translation to this particular verse. The King James Version says, The merciful man doeth good to his own soul, but he that is cruel troubleth his own flesh. Because the the words there are different words. A man who is kind benefits himself, but a cruel man hurts himself. And so the idea here is it's a, it's a difference between someone who is oriented or has a disposition of being a merciful person versus the kind of person who is just generally cruel, who is generally unmerciful would be the contrasting idea. And it, and it troubles his own flesh. It, it has an effect on his well-being, but being characterized by, a, by mercy, by being one who routinely shows mercy, it, it is beneficial to the inner man. It's like life and health. 
So this disposition of mercy is an important priority. And again, be thinking about all these different attributes, these qualities, these ways of living and acting and speaking in light of our overall view and our overall conduct and the way that we just act and behave and think and respond and interact in this fallen world where at times things can seem like they're going to hell in a handbasket, as the article said, and that sometimes it feels like it's going that way in our own homes. You know, I mean, we, we feel the weight of the fallenness all around us. And at times we can be super, super optimistic because things from our vantage point are going well, or maybe we just have a sweet disposition about the goodness and grace of God, and it's just permeating our whole outlook. The fact of the matter is, is that we're called to be merciful in this particular passage as a standard disposition of Christian virtue. And that should help contribute to our general well-being. Proverbs chapter 12, verse 4. We've read this one before. We, re- we talked about this in the context of our study of marriage and home and family. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. So again, just thinking about the context of, of really the, one of the foundational relationships in all of society. I mean, if you just step back and think about what marriage is, not just your marriage and your home and your priorities and your children, but step back and think of marriage as a society, foundational societal institution, as an environment in which the next generation is trained and taught, whatever they're trained and taught, where their priorities get informed and shaped, and you think about the importance of that relationship, this gives one sort of element of that, of how, how detrimental to general well-being a breakdown in that foundational relationship can be. And so the priority for all of us in Christian marriage is to be investing in that relationship for mutual well-being and effectiveness in this important institution that God has ordained for the propagating of the next generation, Lord willing, of those who honor God and want to worship Him and, and fulfill the mission of the gospel as they, Lord willing, come to faith in Christ in time. Proverbs 12, verse 18. We talked about this when we talked about the power of words, but it's a good reminder. Proverbs twelve eighteen says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Now think about this in the context of a a sort of a broad perspective or outlook and our own individual or personal engagement in a fallen world, in the various challenges and struggles of our culture and our society. How many of you, I know that no one in this room has been guilty of this, so you don't have to worry about it. I'm not even going to think it's you, okay? But how many of you have observed, maybe on social media, on Facebook or something, or maybe even in live conversations or whatever, have observed fellow Christians engaged in some type of discourse that really is more reflective of sword thrusts than of healing. And even possibly setting an example, when this kind of stuff happens on social media and it's there for who knows whose eyes to observe, think about the testimony of that kind of discourse on someone who would claim to be, you know, 
a follower of Christ. And so we live in a day and time where the very core values that we hold dear and the very tenets of our faith are oftentimes under assault. And if they're not under assault, they're certainly being marginalized as unimportant, insignificant, archaic. There's, you know, we've progressed beyond the, the you know, archaic beliefs of you know, the Old Testament and the New Testament and those ancient writings. I mean, there, there's, it's, it's at least marginalized in many quarters. And so it's easy for us to feel defensive and feel threatened as we interact and engage in the culture or as we consume the various forms of media that sort of put that out there on display for us. And as a consequence, it's very easy for us to be oriented toward rebuttal and and retort and reply and response and defense verbally. And I have more times than I'd like to admit, if I haven't said words, I've certainly thought them. And if I would have spoken them or posted them on some kind of social media platform, I would have been producing the equivalent of sword thrusts in my rhetoric rather than bringing healing. And yet for the person of wisdom, for the person walking with God and someone who loves the Lord and walks in the Spirit, our words are to be about bringing healing. That's what the words of the wise bring. Turn to chapter 13, <clears throat> verses 11 to 12. Wealth gained hastily will dwindle, but whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. This gives us a picture of, really, it's, it's, it's an image of two different kinds of, um, of desire, two different shades of, of perspective on, really, on the gaining of wealth, but it's really more about the disposition of the individual, the heart and mind of the individual. So you have this one picture of someone who is oriented toward satisfaction and personal gain and enrichment as quickly as possible. So you can attribute to that kind of mindset all different kinds of of characteristics. For example, sort of a sense of, it starts with a sense of, I guess, entitlement. I'm entitled to get these things, and the sooner I get them, then the better off everyone will be because, you know, I'm entitled to these kind of things. I mean, it's just coming from a place of, self-centeredness and self-indulgent, and that's contrasted with the person who's just oriented towards steadiness and prudence and wisdom, particularly in this area of, of accumulating wealth. But then it refers to this, this well-being effect, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. And so that's just a contrast between this someone who's placing their hope and getting what they want when they want it. And that constantly being, it's, it's the idea of never being satisfied. It's that their hope is never realized because they always want more. Or if they get wealth quickly and then it dwindles, then they want more of it. You see what I'm saying? It's, that's, the, that's the context there. Whereas the person who's just steadily working in wisdom and prudence, that their desire is just fulfilled through the steadiness and wisdom of their work. And it's, it, it has a, a general well-being effect on them. So this really speaks to our perspective on material gain and material wealth and material things and our pursuit of them and our motives for our pursuit of them and all those kinds of, those kinds of ideas or thoughts and how 
how really, I really get the heart of this, it's, it's the difference between contentment and discontentment. And you think about the, the general disposition of the person who is manifestly content versus the individual who is always restless and discontent. So wisdom would call us to be that kind of person who is steady and contented. And that's a disposition of general life. It's a tree of life. It's a, it's a robust, fruitful life of well-being. Well, turn to verse 17 of chapter 13. A wicked messenger falls into trouble, but a faithful envoy brings healing. So now you're talking about someone who is bringing word or news or transmitting information. And of course, you could extrapolate this in a lot of different ways and apply it in a lot of different ways. Um, obviously, the, the immediate context is really dealing with a formal, a formal envoy, a formal messenger. It could be a, a messenger from, you know, one, you know, from, maybe from a, a general on the battlefield to the king on the status of the battle. Um, it could be a messenger from one head of state to another. It's sort of like it has a formal envoy kind of idea, an ambassador kind of idea would be a, another way to look at it. But really the, the thrust of, of the, the intent here is really talking about a contrast between someone who is unfaithful in their bringing of news, of their delivering of information. They're wicked, in fact, in that enterprise versus the one who is faithful. And you'll notice that the faithfulness of the messenger, the messenger who is faithful, that brings healing. So this doesn't even speak to uh, the content of the message. In fact, it's the idea of, and you, could, you could put, um, I guess you could um, uh, extrapolate the idea here of someone who is faithful even in delivering bad news. I mean, there's faithfulness, there's trustworthiness even in the delivering of bad news. This doesn't speak to the content. In other words, it's not this admonition to, you know, if you've got to deliver news, you always got to put a nice, positive, sunshine spin on it. I've, I mean, I've, I've been around people who, who, who kind of feel that sense of compulsion. You know, I, hate, I hate to, I don't like conflict, or I, you know, I, don't, want to, you know, I don't want them to be upset. Or, you know, it's, it's those kinds of like sentiments of not wanting to offend or hurt or bring someone down. But ultimately, potentially, not in every single case, but potentially there could be a lack of faithfulness in, in that, that message delivery. And so the call for us here is when we're engaged in some type of delivery of information or message to another, we need to be faithful in that effort, in that enterprise, recognizing that it's about faithfulness. It's not about some shallow sentimental notions of, cheery, upbeat, all-the-time information being passed around. So we have to be very wise in that, in that endeavor because it does bring healing. Think of it in the context of uh, a medical diagnosis. I mean, if a doctor was really, you know, tried to avoid giving you any really bad news, that would certainly potentially affect healing, right, in the most literal of sense. So just apply this to the whole area of general communication and, and bringing of, of information to another. Uh, verse uh, 
chapter 14, verse 30. A tranquil heart gives life to the flesh, but envy makes the bones rot. So again, this is another vivid image or depiction of discontentment versus contentment, of, of, of a peaceful, tranquil heart, a, a peaceful disposition, a contented disposition versus someone who is more oriented toward envy. They're constantly living their lives, comparing their lives or their particular position or the status of what's going on with them or whatever with someone else, and they're dissatisfied and discontent all the time. And this, this speaks to, in the broadest of terms, what can comprehensively affect our overall well-being. But it puts it in very vivid terms by saying that discontentment, or envy in particular, makes the bones rot. It has a totally debilitating effect on us. Look at chapter 15, verse 4. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perseverance in it breaks, excuse me, perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Perseverance in it would not have made any sense at all. (laughs) A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. And I, I can't tell you how many times I regret breaking my own kid's spirit. In, my, in the way I speak to my kids in discipline at times. I've, I've, you can see them, you can see them, ju- I mean, I'm trying to kind of correct them, and I'm justified in my parental effort. They've done something wrong, but just by the fact of how I've spoken to them, it breaks their spirit. So again, another reference to the tongue and how it has the power to be life-producing, to promote general health and well-being versus it also has the, the power to, to break, to even break the spirit. Proverbs fifteen thirteen. I like this. Well, now we're getting into the actual countenance of our face. Proverbs fifteen thirteen. A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. Now, this is a little bit tricky because all of us, have different dispositions of our facial expressions, right? So this is not some mandate for all of us to walk around with plastered smiles on our face, right? It's not, it's not a call to contrived um, pleasantness of disposition on our face. But it really speaks to the fact that when we are down, when we are discouraged, when our hearts are not cheerful, it shows up on our expressions, it becomes apparent in our overall demeanor and disposition. We need to be mindful of that. Because a glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart the spirit is crushed. And sometimes we have to carry burdens heavily, and it does affect our countenance. But if we are living our lives in such a way, in any of these other areas that the Proverbs have already spoken to, where we're being caught up by the latest bad news of the day, which, by the way, I went to a news website and just thought, I'll just pull all the headlines off the website. And it is, it's, con- it's constant bad news. I mean, that's just what's promoted all the time. But if we're massive consumers of, of news media and we're, you know, we're comparing our lives to other people's lives and we're getting caught into all these various traps, uh, 
then we're going to not have a cheerful heart, and that's going to show up on our expression and on our face. And, and broaden this out to really recognize that, that what does that tell the world about where our hope really lies? Even in the disposition of our face and our facial expressions that we carry as a, as a general rule, the way that we just kind of carry ourselves. This, this precious soul here who just said what she said earlier about waking up thankful, physical ailments, pain, struggle, and yet, I mean, her expression is, I mean, she's a testimony of this to me, and it's, it's a joy, and it's powerful. And so we need to recognize that even having a cheerful heart can have massive impacts, even in the face of adversity and struggle. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 30. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and good news refreshes the bones, literally makes, makes us fully satisfied, it really makes the bones fat, is the literal translation there. The light of the eyes rejoices the heart, and good news refreshes the bones. This really is the, what, I, what I was kind of convicted about, actually, uh, actually really convicted about, and, 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 and living in a fallen world, being inundated with bad news and, you know, the moral climate and the things that are really, really frustrating or disappointing or challenging for us um, in our daily lives, we can, I think, become uh, just generally negative in our communication, rather than intentionally positive and encouraging. And we can actually totally underestimate the power of just a positive word of encouragement that we're routinely thinking about sharing with someone as we pass by them. It, it's, it's significant. It's significant for us to be mindful of the fact that just providing some good news to someone just encouraging them in some particular way. I noticed this, and it really was it really was a blessing to me. Or I, you know, I heard that this happened. I'm really excited. Or just being willing to speak that goodness into someone's life. I think that we can oftentimes fall short of of doing that, even though we might think it. We might we might literally think it and be encouraged or happy for someone or, or whatever it might be. It's not that it's not in our heart, but just going that extra mile to speak it. Proverbs would tell us that it's, it has, a, it has a, a fattening to the bones kind of an effect. It's, it's really energizing the people and really effective in building them up. Proverbs 16, 24, just have a few more and then we'll kind of wrap this up. Proverbs 16, verse 24, gracious words are like a honeycomb, sweetness to the soul and health to the body. Again, another reference to the power of our words and and to the effect that they can have on someone's general well-being. And then Proverbs 17, 24, this is probably a familiar one to us. Um, a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. So again, developing the disciplines of cultivating joy in our hearts, knowing that it's, it's good for our soul and it has an effect on others. 
and then recognizing the effect of us languishing in a, a state of having a crushed spirit, it has a, a spiraling effect, a deteriorating effect on our general well-being. And then the last one I have here, and then we'll kind of try to wrap this up, Proverbs 18, verse 14, a man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear. So this is just a, a reference to the fact that, that we can endure we can endure hardship if we have a general sense of well-being, of spiritual perspective, of abiding in Christ and walking in the Spirit. We, we can endure difficulty, but if we are crushed in spirit, that's a state that we cannot expect to live a life that's going to be in service to others and ultimately pleasing to the Lord. The idea here, I think, from Proverbs, and I think in light of the the culture that we live in and the challenges that we face and the things that can be so easily discouraging to us, is that Christians, saved by grace, citizens of another kingdom, knowing that this is not our home, that we are sojourners passing through, who possess the hope of eternal life in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have known what it's like to be in darkness and to be transferred into the kingdom of His precious Son. I mean, we, we are walking and living and breathing testimonies of the goodness and grace of God, regardless of the circumstances of life. That we are called to be men and women who manifest a general well-being in our daily lives, through sickness, through trial, through difficulty, not trite and surface and manufactured and trivial smiles on faces. This is much more profound than that. We are called to be men and women who manifest a general well-being, a general peacefulness of soul, a general contentment that, that has an effect on us, on our, on our overall disposition and our overall sense of vitality and purpose in life and, and our overall expression on our face and, and all the rest. This is a, this is a to me, a, been a great reminder for me to not just be thinking in heady theological terms or uh, how do we biblically think about the, the latest um, moral decline in public policy or whatever it might be. But how about I spend a little bit of time meditating on how my words are bringing healing or not? How about I think about where I'm succumbing to the temptation of envy and what that's having, what delir- deliratorious effect that's having on my well-being and therefore my testimony versus recognizing that if I cultivate a joyful, cheerful heart, that's going to produce a powerful witness and testimony and encouragement to others. I think that this is just really, to me, at least it's been a really good practical exercise to just walk through and think about what what does general well-being in the life of the wise look like from Proverbs? I hope it's been an encouragement to you. Any final thoughts or comments or questions before we close in prayer? All right. Let's pray.